What's up, Salt Company? Wow. Guys, it is great to be back. This is my first Thursday night. I was here at the kickoff, but I was in the balcony, but this is awesome. So if you don't know, my name is Stephen Jones. I am the church planter here. So Candeo Church is going to be planting a church in Mankato here in a year. Let's go Mavericks. And they've asked my family and I if we would go and head that up. But prior to Candeo asking us to go, I got to serve as the Salt Company director here for four years. And it was the greatest job of my life. I love you guys! Yeah! Yeah. Oh, it is fantastic to be back. So since I last saw you guys in April, our family has grown. We now have four kids. It is awesome. So here's the group. We got Isla there. She'll be six soon. We got Jack. We've got crew up in my arms and then baby Jace. And he is awesome. He's now almost four months old. It's been a great summer. If you're wondering, what does the life of Stephen Jones look like now that he is not the salt director? Well, it looks like this. This was three hours ago. Just every time I come home, crew looks at me and he goes, fight dad, you Hulk, I'm a transformer. And I guess for him, a transformer is literally all the superheroes together. So he's Dash from the Incredibles. He's Captain America. He has a Hulk cape on. And I asked him, I was like, do you have all their powers? And he's like, yes. And then he has a sword. And that sword hurts because the like, soft part is off and it just is a plastic end. And he whiffs it so hard at me. So this was three hours ago fighting. I had to take a picture, but this is what my days look like now, just fighting superheroes as a villain. It's fantastic, Uh, but it is great to be with you guys tonight. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open to Matthew 9. We are continuing on our Essentials series, Bible, Community, and Mission. We're asking the question these first couple weeks of Salt Company is, what does it mean to be a healthy disciple? What is essential to following Jesus? What is the essence of that? And so far we've seen a commitment to God's word. If we're gonna follow Jesus, we need to be committed to his word. We need a commitment to his people. And tonight what we're gonna see is we need a commitment to the mission he sends us on. Now, a few weeks ago, Trent showed you this Venn diagram, a way to kind of think about this conceptually. And he pointed out, I'm not gonna go through all of the, the things, but he said, if you're missing some of these essential aspects, it gets you in a less than ideal spot. So if you just have Bible, then you are the Bible quiz champion. You win the sword drills, you know where all the verses are, you are a Bible quiz champion, but you're not in community learning how to live out what scripture's teaching you, and you're not on mission where it's actually having an impact in the people and lives around you. Well, maybe you heard last week's message and you commit to two of these things, Bible and community. Well, Trent pointed out what you have then is what we call a holy huddle, a Christian bubble. One of our pastors in our network, Mark Vance, called this the Menards light section. In Matthew 5, 14, Jesus calls us to be the light of the world. He's like, when this happens, it's just like the Menards light department. A ton of light concentrated in one spot. That's the holy huddle. And tonight we want to talk about actually rounding out these essentials and living on mission, having a commitment to mission. So that's the third commitment. Now, I want to pause here. Because the holy huddle of all of the different variations that you can have in this Venn diagram, the holy huddle is the greatest temptation for us. I don't know if you realize this, but one of the greatest threats to us as a church, to us as a ministry, to you as a disciple, is actually that you would be concentrated with other believers and have no impact on the outside world. One of the greatest threats to our health is that we would be a Menards Light Department. 
Jesus calls us to be salt of the earth, to be light of the world. He told us the last words to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I commanded. Jesus has given us a mission. And if we are going to be healthy disciples, a healthy ministry, then we need to embrace that mission. So tonight, the question I want you to wrestle with is, are you trapped in the holy huddle? Are you trapped in the Christian bubble? You love God's word. You love his people. But you failed to embrace his mission. You see, what Jesus is going to show us tonight is that he not only, as his disciple, he not only wants you to love his word, love his people, but he wants you to love his lost children. And so in Matthew 9, Jesus is going to show us the path forward out of the holy huddle. How can we be disciples who have a commitment to mission. Well, to do that, he's going to show us two steps. First, we need to see what Jesus sees. And then second, we need, second, we need to go where he sends us. If you want to commit to mission, you need to see what he sees and go where he sends us. So if you're in Matthew 9, every single week we open God's word around here. If you're in Matthew 9, we're going to be in verses 35 through 38 tonight. So here's the story. It says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. All right, a commitment to mission starts with seeing what Jesus sees. So what's going on here? Well, verse 35 gives us the setting of what's happening. So here's Jesus going around doing ministry. He's healing people, preaching the good news, healing diseases, sicknesses. This is a ministry day for Jesus. And then all of a sudden he stops. Now think about this from the disciples' point of view. So the disciples, they're following him. There's the group of people that followed him. They're having an exciting ministry day. Jesus is the most extraordinary person that they've ever seen. They've gotten to see water turn to wine, the lame walk. They've seen blind people receive sight. They say Jesus teaches with an authority like they've never heard. They are captivated by this guy. And here is an exci another exciting ministry day. And then all of a sudden, Jesus stops and is looking at something. Just pauses. Now picture Jesus just looking. And the disciples see him, and you can kind of tell when someone's looking at something, right? You can like tell. It's like, oh, what are you looking at? And the disciples, they're like asking that. What is it, Jesus? What do you see? Well, what does he see? Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he saw the crowds. They're doing ministry, and in the midst of a busy ministry schedule, he stops dead in his tracks and just looks at the crowds. He sees them. And now there's a difference between seeing the crowds and seeing the crowds, right? Have you ever been in a large crowd, like a state fair type crowd? Have you ever just stopped and seen the crowds? 
Like people watching is a great thing. I love it. Great pastime. It's really fun just to see the crowds. This is what Jesus is doing. He is seeing the crowds. And what does he see when he sees them? Verse 36, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees the crowds and he feels compassion. And this isn't just a, oh, I'm sorry. No, this is a deep to his core, heart aching compassion. Why? Because he sees people who are distressed, dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. And his heart breaks. He's moved with compassion for them. Now think about these words. Distressed, dejected, sheep without a shepherd. Think about those descriptors. What is distressed? Well, when I think of distressed, I think of like a wounded animal in the woods. It's distressed, it's wounded, it's bleeding out, crying out for help, maybe surrounded by predators. It's wounded. Dejected. What is dejected? It's like the most beaten down person you can think of. They are hopeless. They have no strength, no power to do anything about their circumstances. He sees them. They're distressed. They're dejected. They're like sheep without a shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd is one of the most vulnerable places for a sheep to be. They're vulnerable to attacks from predators. In fact, they can't even find their own water. Sheep will stop at parasite-infested pools of water, muddy water, and just drink it instead of finding clean water without a shepherd. Sheep will actually overgraze pasture lands, completely destroying their food source without a shepherd to move them from one pasture to another. Sheep are completely vulnerable and helpless and lost without a shepherd. And this is what Jesus sees. In the midst of ministry, he stops dead in his tracks and just sees them. And his heart breaks. His heart aches. This is what Jesus sees. Do you see what Jesus sees? Think about the crowds. Like when you see crowds, when you see strangers, when you see non-Christians, what do you see? What do you feel? For so many of us, the thing that we primarily feel when we see crowds, when we see strangers, when we see non-Christians is nothing, indifference, or maybe annoyance, or maybe we are filled with judgment towards them. When was the last time you were walking on campus and saw the crowds and your heart broke like Jesus's, where you actually just stopped and saw the crowds? You saw people. What did Jesus see when he saw the crowds? He saw eternal beings with an eternal destiny, either heaven or hell. He saw them made in his image and his heart broke. Is that what you see when you see the crowds? Or do you even see them at all? This is where mission starts. This is where a commitment to mission begins, a burden for the lost, that our hearts would break like Jesus' heart is breaking. There's a vivid story in the Old Testament that gives us a picture of lostness. 
And it's this story of a prophet named Elijah. Now, Elijah at the time is a prophet of God. There's a wicked king, Ahab, who is ruling Israel. And Elijah, the prophet of God, is on the run. Well, eventually, Elijah and Ahab's prophets find themselves in kind of this like spiritual competition, you could say, on Mount Carmel. So they show up to Mount Carmel, and Ahab has his 450 prophets of the false god Baal. And Elijah sets up this test. He says, hey, let's figure out whose God is the real God. You'll set up an altar. I'll set up an altar. We'll both make sacrifices on our altars. And whoever's God rains down fire, that God is the real God. And so the 450 prophets of Baal agree, and they start. And all day long, they're making sacrifices and crying out to Baal, and there's nothing. No fire is coming down. And then finally, it's Elijah's turn, and Elijah steps up. He prays, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the entire offering, the entire altar. The people of Israel see this. They begin worshiping the God, the true God of Israel, the God of the Bible. And then they seize the wicked prophets of Baal who have led the entire nation astray to forsaking God, and they kill them. And it's this powerful story of God's glory, of Elijah's faith, and that God is the true God. Now, it's also a heartbreaking story. If you've heard that story before, more, more, more likely than not, you've heard it through the point of view of Elijah and, and the point of view of the Israelites. But tonight, I want you to think about it through the point of view of the prophets of Baal. I want you to be thinking, what would they be experiencing during this test? So I'm just going to read a portion of this story to give us an idea of what they would have been feeling. So here's what it says in 1 Kings 18.25. It says, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull to prepare it first. Then call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull that he gave them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away, or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. They shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their customs until blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. Here the prophets of Baal are, dancing, cutting, and raving for a lifeless God who would not answer. Think about how frantically they would have been trying to get this God to answer. Think about the urgency that they would have felt. Think about how demoralized they would have been. Think about how distressed they would have been. All day long, dancing, cutting, raving for a dead God. And in the end, after all the dancing, cutting, and raving, to be destroyed because of their wickedness. It's horrible. 
And that is the reality of lostness. You see, that is exactly what it's like to be lost. Dancing, cutting, and raving for lifeless gods. We are surrounded by students and people who are dancing, cutting, and raving for gods who will never answer, for gods who will never hear, for gods who will never satisfy. We're surrounded by students who are dancing, cutting, and raving for the God of pleasure and partying, hoping that it will fill the void. We are surrounded by students dancing, cutting, and raving for the God of relationship, hoping that this one, this one will finally make me happy. Dancing, cutting, and raving for the God of success, for the God of money, for the God of power. Does your heart break for them? Does your heart break for the girl who sits in front of the mirror for hours, dancing, cutting, and raving for the God of beauty, hoping that someone will notice her? Does your heart break for the guy who's in broken relationship after broken relationship, dancing, cutting, and raving, hoping that a girl will finally give him the approval that he hopes for? Does your heart break for the student who's dancing, cutting, and raving, for the lifeless God of religious performance, hoping that the God of works-based salvation will finally love him because he's cleaned up his life? Does your heart break for the students on the hill tonight who are dancing, cutting, and raving, hoping this is the party that will finally do it, only to wake up empty tomorrow? Does your heart break? Or are you indifferent, annoyed, and filled with judgment? Jesus looked at them and he felt compassion. His heart ached for them. Distressed, dejected, sheep without a shepherd. When you die, there are two options. Either you know Jesus and you will spend an eternity in heaven, or you don't know Jesus and you will spend an eternity in hell. Does your heart break because of that reality? And here is the reality. For those who don't know Jesus, hell doesn't just start when they die. Hell is now as they are dancing, raving, and cutting for lifeless gods who are dead. Do you see what Jesus sees? Are you burdened for the lost? Now in a room like this, it's not lost on me that for some of you, the starting place tonight is not how do you share Jesus, but how do you receive Jesus? For some of you, you are right now dancing, raving, and cutting for lifeless gods. You are doing everything you can to pursue the things that the world tells you that will fulfill you and make you happy. Just indulge in this sin and you will finally have the fulfillment that you want. Here's the invitation from Jesus tonight. Come to me. You are a lost sheep, dis distressed and dejected, and in me there's life. Jesus is inviting you to leave those lifeless gods and experience the freedom he's offering, the freedom that he purchased for you on the cross 2,000 years ago. To stop frantically working to achieve all the things the world tells you to achieve, only to end up with no one listening, no one answering, no one paying attention. Receive Christ. Do you see what Jesus sees? 
Now, in Matthew 9, it's not just the crowds that he sees, but there's a surprising thing in verse 37 that he also sees. Here's a surprising thing. When he looks at the crowds, what he sees. Look at verse 37. It says, Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Why is that surprising? Well, right here he's revealing to us one of the craziest realities about committing to mission. It's the reality that right now God has prepared more people to hear the gospel than there are ready to share the gospel. Right? What's abundant and what is few? The harvest is abundant. There are more people ready to hear the gospel than there are ready to share the gospel. There isn't a harvest problem. There's a gospel labor shortage. It's surprising. Do you realize that God is working in unseen ways to prepare the hearts of the lost to respond to the gospel? All around us, do you believe that? Do you realize that removes so many of the fears that we face when it comes to sharing our faith? God has gone before you in unseen ways to prepare them to hear and respond to the gospel. And now he's just inviting us to get to be a part of that. It's extraordinary. Do you see that? Now, when we see what Jesus sees, how do we respond next? Well, second, will you go where Jesus sends you? Look at verse 38. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. As we become burdened for the loss, as we begin to see what Jesus sees, here's the response. It's to go where he sends us. But actually, there's a step before that. What was that? It was to pray. That actually, before we go out on mission, the mission starts with prayer. Now, why is that? Well, we have to realize that the mission that Jesus is inviting us to engage in is a mission that's actually impossible for us to accomplish. When I was a SALT student, I got the chance to go overseas to Southeast Asia for two months. It was an incredible experience. And we went to a country that has a huge population and a very low percentage of Christians, like less than 2%. And we were in an area that was even less, given where it was at in the country. And so we were in one city of about 9 million people. And then we were going to go on a weekend trip to the next closest city, which happened to be like two and a half, three hours away by train. So we went with our friend, we get on the train and he tells us like, hey, we're going to this city that's the next closest city, but we're going to see a few villages on the way. And I'm thinking, okay, villages, like probably what you're thinking, like small, like maybe 200 people, huts, like that's what I'm picturing when I think village. Well, we're in the mountains, so we come around the first bend of the mountain, and we're going to see the very first village that we're going to pass. And as we come around the mountain pass, what we see is a city the size of Cedar Rapids. And he's like, oh, there's the village. And I'm like, that is not a village. Where I'm from, that is like the biggest city I've ever heard of. Like Cedar Rapids, like there's an airport. Like that's crazy. You know, like they, they've got things like Menards. I don't know, like it's huge. There's just like a 100,000 person village. And then I'm like, okay, well maybe that was just a fluke because we're still close to the city. Well, for the next two hours, it was like every 10 minutes after every bend of the mountain, we would come across Cedar Rapids, then Waterloo, then Des Moines, and these villages just over and over and over again. For three hours, we saw village after village, which amounted to hundreds of thousands of people. And I began to get very overwhelmed. In fact, as we were going, there were even some... Uh, 
farmers that were so close to the train tracks that I could make eye contact with them as we were passing. And when I made eye contact with this rice farmer, my thought was, more than likely, knowing what's true of this country, that person has never once heard the name of Jesus. And they will never once hear the name of Jesus before they die. And they face an eternity separated from him. And then I began looking on the train at the people with me, and I thought to myself, this is more than likely the only time these people in our train what is that called? Car? Thank you, Michael. I appreciate that. In our train car. This is probably the only time in their life that they will be this close to a Christian. And after passing hundreds of thousands of people that had the same story, I began to weep on the train, just uncontrollably crying. There was a guy like looking at me, trying to figure out what was wrong because I was just overwhelmed by the reality of lostness. And everything in me just wanted to jump up and shout, Jesus! But I was like, I don't even know the language. And like, I don't even think that would be effective. And I just felt so helpless. It was probably the most helpless I've ever felt. And so the only thing I could do in that moment was pray. Because I was so aware of my complete inadequacy to do anything about the spiritual lostness of those around me. And as I began to pray, God began to remind me that this is the Lord's harvest, right? Whose harvest is this? Pray to the Lord of the harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest. He began to remind me that he and his sovereign power could snap his finger and open the eyes of every person in that country. And all he was calling me to do was to faithfully go where he was sending me. What was true in that country is true in America. We just miss it because we speak a language and we can have a service and we can do things on campus and people show up to it. But my complete inadequacy to do anything about their spiritual state is the same complete inadequacy that we have to do anything about the spiritual state of the lost around us. We cannot change hearts. Only God can. So what is the first response when we see what Jesus sees? It's to pray. But it doesn't stop there. Because what is God doing as we pray? He is sending laborers out into the harvest. And if you look in verse 1 of chapter 10, right after this, he, Jesus summons the 12 disciples. And then verse 5, he sends them out. And just like in this story, so often those who are called to pray to the Lord of the harvest are often the ones who are sent into the harvest themselves. So we don't just pray, but we also, in an act of dependence, go. We go into the spiritual lostness surrounding us. We go with the hope of the gospel. Well, where do you go? How do you go? Well, where do you see lostness? Where is your heart burdened? God is probably sending you there. He's sending you back to your dorm room to share with your roommate. He's sending you back to your lab group to begin influencing your partners. He's sending you back into your classes, your workplaces, your neighborhoods to take the hope of the gospel to people who are distressed and dejected and like sheep without a shepherd. He's sending us to other communities and other nations where there are few laborers. If you want to be committed to mission, see what Jesus sees and then go where he sends you. Now, how do we do that? How does that practically flesh itself out in our life? Well, I just want to walk through five very practical ways that you can commit to mission. 
As you see what Jesus sees and your heart is stirred and burdened, and as you begin to put your yes on the table to go where he's sending you, what could this look like? First, pray. Pray. I've already hit it, but that is where it all starts. Around here, we talk about who is your five. So we ask people, hey, who's your five? That is five people that I've written down their names, people that I come in contact with on a regular basis who don't know Jesus, and all I'm doing is praying for them. We set our alarms to 10.02. Why? Well, this same verse is in Luke 10.2, that we would pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. And so, so many of us have set our alarms to 10.02, and every day we're praying this prayer, God, send out laborers into the harvest. So who's your five? Write down five names of lost people and begin praying for opportunities to share the gospel with them. Set your alarms to 10.02. Step one, pray. Step two, invest. Invest in friendships with the lost. This looks like being available, accessible, and relatable. Available. Literally, do you have time to spend in friendship with the lost around you? Or are you too busy? Jesus had time to stop, pause, look at the, at the crowds. Do you have time in your schedule? This could start as small as you're going to reserve one lunch a week to schedule with a friend who doesn't know Jesus. But if we want to be on mission, we need to be available. We need to be accessible. At Salt Company, we have no closed friend groups. None of our friend groups look like circles. They all look like horseshoes. There's always accessibility into our friendship circles. Now, this challenges the holy huddle. That we wouldn't just be on intramural teams with Salt students only. That we wouldn't just hang out on the weekends with Salt students only. But that we would actually have open friend groups where we won't have to ask each other, hey, is it okay if I bring someone from my class to this thing? It's like, of course, like absolutely. Like we wanna be relationally accessible to those who don't know Jesus. I want you to have close friendships, but not closed friendships. We need to be relatable. Um, I began thinking one time, hey, how did I make all of my friends? Like, what are the things that we did? And I was like, okay, we went to McDonald's. We set up launchers in the parking lot of McDonald's. Like, we spent a lot of times at McDonald's. We went frolfing. We played video games. Like, we did those things. And then I started thinking, how am I trying to make friends with people who don't know Jesus? I'm sitting one-on-one -on -one across a table drinking coffee. None of my friends and I have ever done that. Now, if you like coffee and they like coffee, praise God. But we need to be relatable. Do the things that you like to do and they like to do. We get this weird idea that, man, if, I go, if I'm going to reach someone, I'm going to go do something that has never once gotten me a friend. Like, <laughs> what? Like, like, okay, if you have friends and that happened over coffee, sweet, go drink coffee. But if you don't have any friends that you've ever drank coffee with, don't schedule coffee meetups with non-believers. Like, you know, because you don't like it and they probably don't like it either. Go to McDonald's, pull out a lawn chair. I don't know, go frolfing. Like do things that you like and they like. Be relatable, be normal, all those great things. Okay, invest. Here's step three. Step three is share. At some point as you're investing in that friendship, pray for an opportunity to share the gospel. Now, there are so many ways that you can share the gospel with someone. My favorites are tools. I love the, the tools that we have here at Salt Company, like gospel circles or the bridge diagrams, or, or simply just sharing my story, how I put my faith in Jesus. 
If you don't know what those tools are, ask your connection group leader. Sign up for Gospel 101 and learn those tools. If you're nervous to like do that with your friend, well, pull, pull a friend in with you. Pull your connection group leader. Say, hey, help me like know how to share. I want to have a gospel conversation with this person. But at some point, share. If the person after you share says, sweet, I don't want to receive Jesus. That's all right. Like you did great. You were faithful. Well, ask them, well, would you want to read the Bible with me to learn more? I bet you they'll say yes. You know, and if they don't, no big deal. Go back to investing in that relationship, doing things they like to do, doing things you like to do. Read the Bible with them. Open up to stories of Jesus. Here's step three. If you want to be committed to mission for your entire life, I literally do not know of anything better that you could do in college than go overseas. Like, I am so serious about that. Now, that's not the only way to have a commitment to mission, but I'm just saying, like, when I went overseas and when Natalie went overseas while we were in college, it changed our hearts. We've never seen lost people the same. That train experience changed my life. It changed me. And if you want to see what Jesus sees, and if you want to be committed to going where he goes, one of the best ways to do that is to go on a summer trip with salt, to get on an overseas experience at some point in the next four years. Hands down the best. You will be used by God in that place, and God will change you. Here's the fifth step. Go on a church plant. Now, this is not me saying the only way to be on mission is to go on a church plant, but it is me saying that one of the most strategically effective ways to evangelize is to start a church. Statistics show it. The Bible shows that pattern to be true. Experience testifies to it. One of the most effective ways to impact a community long-term for the gospel is to start a church there. Here is our ask at Salt Company. Would you, for the first two years after college, go on a church plant? Seriously, there's going to be almost no other time in your life, like the window right after college. You probably won't be married. You probably won't have kids. You definitely won't have a job. Like, (laughs) never again will your life be, like the world map be more open to you than when you are 21 or 22, about ready to take off from this place. Would you make a decision to leverage those years in an impactful way to help start a church, either here in the States or overseas? Now, there are so many options to do this. You can come to Mankato with us. We would love it. It'd be a blast. Uh, You can go on another Salt Network church plant. But maybe those church plants don't work for you for whatever reason. That's fine. We partner with an organization called the Sin Network, and they literally have hundreds of church plants going all over the country every single year. Everywhere from Spencer, Iowa, to Chicago, to Marshalltown, Iowa, to Florida. It's all over the place. Like, we can help you find a church plant. More than likely, where you're going to get a job, there's a church plant with the Sin Network. Would you leverage your first two years out of college to help start a church? We partner with organizations that will send you overseas, like the IMB or C2C for two years. Would you say, hey, I'm 21, I'm 22. I'm going to go help international church plan for a couple years. Then I'm going to come back, get a job, get married, have kids, and continue to follow wherever Jesus sends me. That would be incredible. Be wild. And you would have a tremendous impact on the kingdom. A commitment to mission starts with seeing what Jesus sees and going where he sends you. 
Now let's step back. Why would we want to commit to a mission? Why would we commit ourselves to this? Because mission isn't easy. Why commit to it? The reason is there was one time when Jesus saw you and you were distressed and dejected and like a sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus' heart broke for you. He saw you. He saw you distressed with the wound of sin in your heart. He saw you dejected, hopeless, having no ability to change your spiritual circumstances or condition. He saw you like a sheep without a shepherd, drinking from the parasite-infested pools of sin. He saw you, and then he went where his father sent him. And where did his father send him? To a cross. A cross that you and I should have been on. And yet it was Jesus who was ultimately distressed, taking on the sting of sin. It was Jesus who was ultimately dejected, abandoned by his father. And it was Jesus who was ultimately the sacrificial sheep, bleeding for our sins. He did this so that you could have healing, so that you could have an unshakable hope, and so that you could have a shepherd who sees you and loves you and leads you and saves you. And now he's inviting you as his sheep who was once lost but is now found to go tell other sheep. Hey, I have found the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I have found the great physician who can heal you from your wound of sin. I have found the one who has true hope and his name is Jesus. You see, our commitment to mission is not motivated out of obligation or guilt, but it's motivated out of joy and compassion. Because we were once distressed, dejected, and like sheep without a shepherd, but we have been saved. And now we enjoy, take the hope of the gospel to those who are lost. Do you see what Jesus sees? And will you go where he sends you? Let's pray. God, let this be true of us. God, would we remember that we were once lost? We were once the ones who were dancing, raving, and cutting ourselves for lifeless God. God, that was me. When I came to college, that was me. That was my story. Hoping that the party scene would fulfill me, but finding it to be empty. And Jesus, you got a hold of my life. You saw me distressed, dejected, and like a sheep without a shepherd, and you got a hold of me. And I experienced freedom in you. And God, that's what we want for every student in this room and every student on our campuses and every person made in your image in our world to find the freedom and hope and healing that is in you. God, would you burden us for the lost? Would you help us to see what Jesus sees when he looks at the crowds? And God, would you help us to respond in obedience, to go where he sends us? God, would we not use our life for the ambitions that the world tells us we should go after, but instead would we leverage our life for your sake and making your name great throughout this world so that all may know the hope that is in Jesus. Lord, we love you.